Hey, Helicopter Podcast listeners, this is John Gray from the Hangar Z Podcast. I want to let you all know Vertical Fowler's Spring 2024 issue is now available. In our Spring 2024 issue, we head over to Leon County for a look at how law enforcement agencies in Northern Florida are combining forces to enhance crime fighting. We also visit Metro Aviation in Shreveport, Louisiana to learn about the work behind installing a Metro interior in an Airbus helicopter. We connect with the experts in the search and rescue sector for an update on the latest trends, training, and tools using helicopter rescue missions. And finally, we catch up with the Los Angeles Police Department's Aviation Unit for a look at its training programs. All this, plus highlights of some new products and services that made their debuts at Heli Expo 2024. To check out the latest issue of Vertical Valor, go to verticalvalor.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to find magazines. Enjoy. What is up, party people? On this week's episode, my good buddy Dave DeZura drops in to talk with me. And this was a fun episode. Not only is it great to catch up with Dave, he's been a longtime friend, but Dave has really entrenched himself in making the industry safer. Uh, In fact, Dave is part of the U.S. helicopter safety team. He's also on the HAI safety working group. Um, And he's just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to everything helicopters, but has uh, a master's, essentially, when it comes to safety. So in the episode, we talk about statistics, what is causing accidents, what can we do as an industry to hopefully eliminate accidents and kind of everything in between. During the episode, Dave refers to some uh, different sites and different links and other resources. And for your convenience, I have provided all of those links into the description, so please check them out. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. As always, a special thanks to Celicopter for producing this podcast. Specializing in helicopter evaluations, faster sales, and superb service, Celicopter is the go-to agency for clients expecting immediate results. Celicopter's team of helicopter professionals are the best in the business. Using their aviation expertise, a nationwide network, and a proprietary 76-step listing strategy, Celicopter will convert your listing from Mayday to Payday. Ready to get started? Text HELICOPTER to 1-855-CELICOPTER. That's HELICOPTER to 1-855-735-5226. And a Celicopter pilot agent will reach out. Celicopter. List it. Sell it. Done. All right, all right, all right. It's that time again for the Helicopter Podcast. I'm your host, Halsey Scheider. And uh, first and foremost, just want to give a big thank you to our listeners that have been reaching out and uh, touching base with me on social media. It warms my little heart uh, every time I get a message uh, from people that are listening. Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. My expectation of the podcast was uh, not what it's turned into. Uh, and it's turned into something, I think, even bigger and cooler than I thought it could be. So thank you to our listeners. That being said, if you like the Helicopter Podcast, one thing that would really help me out is if you wouldn't mind leaving a review. So wherever you listen to the podcast, whether it's on Apple or Spotify, if you wouldn't mind just taking five minutes, 
throwing up, you know, five stars. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but, you know, five stars is the best. Uh, so if you enjoy the show, uh, throw me some stars and uh, leave a little feedback. Uh, I would greatly appreciate that. Uh, on this week's episode, uh, I'm super excited. A lot of the episodes that I do are kind of casual conversation, and this will be the same. However, today's guest, uh, Dave DeZura, longtime friend, uh, I've kind of asked him to come with a little bit more on the safety side because Dave uh, has really invested a lot of his time, energy, effort, and professional career being kind of involved on the safety side of helicopters. And so I'm really hoping to uh, dive deep. So Dave, welcome to the Helicopter Podcast. Super excited to have you on. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I really appreciate the invite. Dave and I go way back um, many, many years. It's probably at least 10 years now, right? Or when did you start working at Hillsborough? Gotcha. Yeah, I think it's it uh, a little more than 10 years now. Yeah, I think maybe... Uh, maybe 11 or something, somewhere around there though. And the way that Dave and I met, uh, I think is a good lesson for a lot of our listeners out there that are maybe just finishing up their flight training. Um, we've, we've discussed it on the show before that one of the most ideal things is to do your flight training and then be a flight instructor at the school that uh, you learned at. It just kind of makes things easy. It's an easy transition. Uh, it's maybe just it's the it's in my opinion maybe the fastest way from a to b uh, however when i was the assistant chief instructor at hillsboro we were having problems with applicants thinking that it was just kind of a guaranteed thing that they were going to get hired uh, because they went to school at hillsboro and so at that time marcus grukey the chief said hey look we're going to open this up to outside candidates, which is not something that Hillsborough at that time typically did. And I don't know what they do now, but uh, at that time it was a little bit unprecedented. And so we put a, put an ad out looking for flight instructors. We got a lot of interest um, and ultimately narrowed it down to two guys, uh, Dave DeZura and uh, another guy, Dave did not do his training at Hillsborough. He did it in Idaho. And, you know, Dave came in, presented himself um, very well uh, during just the normal interview, taught a great lesson. Uh, I think I did the flight with you, if I don't We did fly together early on. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was that day, but I think you may have, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it was, um, you know, Hillsboro had its way of doing things. And, you know, so I, I do remember flying with you and thinking, okay, we need to, not that anything was wrong. We just need to kind of do it the Hillsborough way, right? And and you probably felt that uh, from your end. But, but, you know, long story short, Dave came in. He presented himself extremely professionally, and he ended up getting the job and then became uh, a very uh, good instructor at Hillsboro, um, someone that was well-respected at the school, someone that provided great instruction. And so I think it's a good lesson for our listeners out there that, uh, it may not work out to go to your school. I, I think Dave's case, you know, they would have hired him in a heartbeat. They just didn't have maybe the student load. And so Dave didn't want to wait around and, and he came and worked at Hillsboro. So uh, keep your options open. And if you're interviewing at a, a school that you did not go to, make sure that you come in and put your best foot forward. Um, and, you know, you, you show the person you are and the professional person you are uh, and kind of the rest falls into place. So, uh, Dave, 
I'm glad that we met. I'm glad that you, uh, do you remember that time? Was that kind of like a stressful, crazy thing for you? Yeah, you're right that, um, you know, there was supposed to be a job for me that was down the line where I had trained, but, um, I just told them I'm going to start sending out applications. I had, you know, my spreadsheet of every flight school in the country. And I think it's a lot easier these days, maybe, but in any case, uh, <laughs> ended up over there. It was stressful, um, a little bit just at the time, but it didn't take too long. I think it was a month or, or two by the time, uh, since I'd really completed all my training that I got picked up over there, but it, it was good. I think, you know, I encourage people a lot of my career, actually, it's interesting thinking back. Cause I, at the time I didn't, or even hadn't thought of that particular example, but a lot of what I've done so far, hasn't followed the typical path. Um, and I do think that there are ways to, uh, I do encourage like what you said, as far as being the flight instructor. And, um, there are a lot of ways there's general paths, which are great to follow, but you don't always have, you know, you don't have to panic if you don't fit into that. Um, there's a lot of ways I haven't, and all, you know, so far that's gone fine for me. Um, and so, yeah, that was an opportunity to learn a new place, learn new things, see the different angle on a lot of things. And it was good for everybody, I think. Yeah. I think it's an interesting fact too. I, you know, Again, it's great to get hired at the school that you work at, but being able to go to a new environment of a reputable flight school operator, whatnot, you're able to probably become a more proficient pilot because now you get to kind of see a different angle. Uh, specifically when you're training, you get very much in the box of where you're training at, especially at a place like Hillsborough, which in my opinion is very kind of regimented. Yeah, I think it was good. Or at actually, least at I, that know, time. There were quite a, I quite a lot of ways in which I was able to – um, gently mix things up. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's <laughs> and good. That was good. Yeah. And I think everybody, you know, that was part of why they brought me on. So that was, it wasn't anything major, but, uh, it was good for me because I learned a lot about how they did things and, and I think they benefited from having outside influence. So it's, yeah. Um, that was a good, good kickoff. Was our, um, was our boy uh, Jorge Pacheco your first Hillsborough student? <laughs> I, you know, I was thrown a lot right off the bat, and he was one of the early <laughs> ones. Uh, yeah, um, but I, yeah, I think it, maybe I started with his commercial actually. Yeah, yeah, I, um, I love Jorge. Jorge ended up, um, you know, I didn't know him all that well at Hillsborough, but then he got a job in Vegas, and uh, his wife at the time worked for Alaska Airlines. And so he was commuting back. He was working like four days on, three days off for Sundance. And my wife and I were living in Vegas. I was at Maverick at the time. And Jorge uh, ended up renting a room from us. And so we we lived with Jorge. Um, so shout out to Jorge. He's awesome. Great roommate. Uh, phenomenal cook. He's from Oaxaca, <laughs> Mexico. Their cuisine is incredible. And uh, he he's able to cook it well. So awesome. yeah, I look forward to uh, that visiting was, that part of the world. I haven't been yet, but I hear great things. I would love to. <laughs> I really want to go to Oaxaca. I, I've been talking to Jorge for years about it. Like, Hey, let's do like a trip. And you know, schedules are just kind of hard to align. He has two little kids now, but uh, post COVID I saw I him a, recently. a trip there that got canceled because of my passport expired during the, the whole COVID oh. no traveling session. So I, I was like, had to cancel the trip until my passport get processed. So we'll, it's, it's I ended up. Uh, I, I ended up going on an international cruise uh, right before COVID, and uh, so my passport got renewed, and I was literally like three or four days of getting stuck on a ship for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, like we barely made it off our cruise 
because it was happening all kind of when COVID was ramping up. Um, you know, like the first like two days of the cruise was pretty fun and, and cruise like. And then it like became almost like a near lockdown. Like you couldn't serve yourself at the buffet. <laughs> these little um, these little uh, cruise attendants would be walking around with with spray bottles of disinfectant, going washy washy, <laughs> and they were spraying you all over. Um, oh, so I got super lucky, but I do have a fresh passport, which is nice. So, uh, so Dave, I do want to kind of jump right into. Um, kind of talking about safety, you know, and I think that sometimes uh, just by saying, you know, we're all committed to making the industry safer, you know, people are kind of just have to say those things uh, because, you know, we all at the end of the day want to be safer. But I do think that a lot of professional pilots, including myself, don't necessarily go out of the way to help the industry get safer. I think that for me specifically, I chose to operate professionally and safely, you know, uh, to protect my life and my passengers, but I never was really pushing hard to make noticeable impact on the industry other than just my personal actions. And I think that's probably kind of a stance that a lot of people take. However, you have been invested uh, heavily into safety, not just your personal safety and how you fly helicopters, but more importantly, how you can help the industry become uh, a safer uh, industry as a whole. And so uh, if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving us a little bit of your background on, on why safety has become so important to you and some of the things that you're doing, and let's just kind of see where the conversation goes from there on some of the really cool safety topics uh, that you're part of within the industry. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think to start out, Background wise, yeah, I had a couple, um, you know, in my operations, uh, basically running a the the comp a 135 and 141 flight school. Uh, you know, the company. Um, I'm glad that I had some mentors, Mike Franz and Dennis Pierce. They were both involved in some of the safety initiatives, and then they kind of backed off a bit. And I, you know, I I've continued um, doing a lot of work in the safety side of things, but so. I think having some mentors was helpful, but a lot of it for me, um, you know, I've always been a risk taker. I think a lot of people identify with that as a, uh, you know, if they've gotten into helicopter flying, um, that that's maybe been part of their, part of their kind of uh, personal, like uh, personality, I guess. Um, so I was a professional whitewater guide. Um, I was a kayaker, backcountry skier, a, a lot of activities that probably a lot of helicopter pilots take part in. Um, and then getting into flying, you know, I, I think uh, that was it. as I moved into the safety side of things, um, it was important for me to kind of uh, not get preachy because I'm, it's not like I don't think that risk is part of things. I think it's like the reason we're all doing what we're doing. Um, and it's still an important part of my life in like professionally and outside of uh, my helicopter flying. But in general, I was actually shocked, you know, in my early years as a pilot that, you know, being in uh, professional free skiing circuits and, and circles, uh, you know, knowing people in different kind of extreme sports environments that I had more more like near friend losses as helicopter pilot than I did in those circles over years. And that that was uh, shocking to me. And um, it wasn't really what I was expecting, I guess. And in general, just the combination of those factors, uh, you know, got me into that side of things. So early on, started with the U.S. helicopter safety team and then uh, 
also shortly thereafter uh, got involved with the Helicopter Association International, um, joined onto their uh, um, safety committee at the time, which they've kind of renamed the safety working group, but it's the same same thing. And both of them are just, uh, you know, a bunch of the industry professionals working together to try, like you said, to, uh, you know, bring whatever they can to the table to reduce accident rates. So the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team is one um, that has been around for a long time. Uh, initially, it, they just set a goal of saying, All right, we want zero accidents, and they were just going to try to find a way to do it. Uh, accident rates had been fairly high. You know, they've been tracking it. Basically, though, what they did was take a they have an industry co-chair, as they call it, and a, and a uh, regulatory or um, a government co-chair. And so what that means is that it's not driven by the government and it's not driven just by, um, you know, by commercial operators. It's a joint operation of regulatory and commercial operators, both with the, you know, the mutual goal of driving accident rates down because everybody wants that. And, um, and, they're, and just trying to find ways to do it. So recently, in the, well, I shouldn't say recently now, but they reorganized to follow a model that was already existing in the fixed wing side um, in general aviation called the GAGSC, excuse me, GAGSC. And that's where uh, they basically have a really statistically driven model. Everything they do is by studying statistics and then trying to find ways to address the specific factors. And so, you know, it doesn't matter if you're actually reaching outside yourself to affect the industry, having statistics available to you or like knowing what's going on in the industry from a safety standpoint, I think is really beneficial. It helps you learn from others and not make the same mistakes. And so early on, I know before I was involved with any of this, I would read NTSB reports and just kind of like try to go through the database to educate myself about what was going on in the industry. And um, this has kind of been an extension of that because now we do a lot of research. Uh, there's people dedicated to crunching the numbers, and then we take that and try to do something with it. That's awesome. Now, when you talk statistics here, uh, to put you on the spot a little bit, um, right now, statistically, what is causing the most accidents in helicopter aviation? So that, is that is that no, on-the-spot hot you know, question? The or what? Actually, it's been, there's been very little shift over the last the, – really, the biggest uh, um, statistical analysis – started in 2013 where they really did the fact is that the ntsb and other uh, resources um don't have helicopters are a small kind of a niche industry so they don't have the resources or expertise always to uh, really get a probable cause that speaks to the core issues and so starting in 2013 the ushst went through and they analyzed each accident um and they've been doing this over the years um with just helicopter industry professionals, group of people to identify the core causes in a bunch of buckets or, or basically categories that they can put it in that goes beyond maybe what the NTSB or somebody else might label it. You know, saying it's pilot error doesn't help, doesn't help you necessarily prevent that issue. <laughs> and so, um, of course, what that's done though is, yeah, let you see as a lot, you maybe have heard the saying that there's not a lot of a, there's not a lot of, you don't have to invent new ways to crash helicopters. It's really a lot of the same issues for a long time. Um, but for the last, yeah, probably 10 years, um, the top three are uh, um, loss of control, low-level operations, and um, inadvertent IMC, basically, or unintended IMC. And so the interesting thing is that those account for almost consistently 60% of all the fatal accidents. 
like those three things combined. So there might be 20 buckets of issues. Um, but if you were to eliminate just or reduce those three dramatically, they account for the vast majority, um, almost two thirds. That's crazy. When, when you say loss of control, so I, I obviously understand inadvertent entry to IMC, um, understand low level. When you say low level, are we talking about like wire strike accidents, things like that? So any sort of contact on a low with level? The, yep. Um, wire strikes are a big one. Um, they're probably the bulk of it, but any sort of, uh, yeah, see fit type terrain or obstacle issue, um, in low level operations is definitely a common deal. And not, you know, that's not surprising, but it doesn't mean it's not preventable. Um, and so that's definitely one of the, one of the challenges to try to figure out through technology or training or, you know, other means how to stem that. Um, and then, uh, you were referring to the, the loss of control It's kind of a broad bucket. Um, so that's, that does cover, uh, LTE, um, VRS and all of those things. Um, but it, it is, yeah, it, that's one area that I think it'd be nice to drill deeper down into, but for the most part, all of the aerodynamic hazards fall under that. And it is separate from any mechanical okay. issue. So mechanical issues usually are actually somewhere down the line, fourth or fifth. Um, so it's not actually way down the line, but um, yeah, it's definitely a smaller percentage. Yeah. I mean, I've always kind of told people from my non-statistical background at looking at accidents uh, and just kind of knowing the industry somewhat well and and like yourself reading NTS re NTSB reports and whatnot, that, you know, a lot of it boils down to usually the person up front doing something silly opposed to the helicopter having some type of catastrophic failure. Um, and, and that's crazy to say like that 60%, you know, make up that because you're absolutely right. You know, if we can figure out ways to slowly eliminate those pilot errors causing whether it's the inadvertent entry, loss of control, uh, or, you know, low level ops, you know, that will dramatically change things. I do know that, and I'm not sure, you know, 2013, so I'm not sure what the, the data is before that, but, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of the, um, those accidents, you know, were, um, potentially like air medical, especially inadvertent entry to IMC, uh, landing off, off site, you know, uh, in a wire environment, things like that. And I have to say, I was really pleased when I worked Air Medical at the company that I worked for. And I think a lot of the companies are going that route. In fact, I was able to chat recently with uh, the CEO of LifeLight uh, and some other industry professionals within the EMS world that, you know, they're all taking a much greater stance at, you know, uh, equipping the cockpits more effectively, specifically for like inadvertent entry to IMC, not forcing people, you know, not... Uh, supporting pilots to, to say no, essentially not putting too much mission pressure. Um, I know at Air Evac that they, they said, you know, they typically had like six to 10 uh, events every year with inadvertent entry. And now with them having, you know, the heli SAS autopilot and the glass cockpit, those events kind of turned into a non-event. So I'm hoping that over time, more and more, uh, operators and private owners alike will start adopting some of the practices that these bigger operators are, are doing to ensure safety. When it comes to like statistics, and maybe you don't have this information, but I'm curious of, you know, 
are a lot of these accidents operators or are we finding that a lot of accidents are occurring with you know private yeah, owners? so um uh, it's a good question there are a couple that was one of the things i was going to bring up um i think yeah what you said was pretty interesting there's just been a pretty pretty significant shift uh, because they do slice the accidents by industry segment type of work being done um and air medical has over the last 10 years become a smaller player in that um in that pie and uh but it's still shifting right now in my work with the uh as chair of the hai safety working group um i've been really trying to direct resources towards um industry segments because the ushst um also does some of that but a lot of the initiatives have been uh you know issue specific where um the statistics also show yeah a significant impact in specifically personal private ops which you mentioned um, and then agricultural operations are the two segments that actually, in terms of fatal accidents, once again, like if you were to remove those two, you'd remove more than 50% in the last like one or two years of the fatal accidents. Maybe that might be a little exaggeration. I don't want to, uh, overstate the numbers, but it's a very significant amount and I believe it to be close to half or more. Um, but it, yeah, it could be off on that. But in any case, uh, you know, I think each one of those groups has their own channels of communication, their own safety cultures, their own, uh, and, and I, you know, I think to work with those people is an important step in, you know, reducing the overall numbers for the betterment of the industry. Nobody wants to lose a friend. It doesn't matter what type of work you're doing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, we, um, you know, I've <clears throat> in my uh, time as a helicopter professional, uh, I've lost a lot of a lot of people actually um you know it's um knock on wood it's been a good streak lately um but you know it's uh it's kind of not if but when you're gonna lose a close friend you know and um every time an accident occurs and it's a fatal accident that individual has a big group of helicopter network friends that have lost a buddy and it sucks. It's, uh, there's no better way to say it. <laughs> in my opinion, it's just, it's, it's a horrible part of it. Um, obviously, you know, helicopters, like you said, they're always going to have some inherent risk. Uh, anything we do in life is going to have inherent risk and, um, you know, helicopters, unfortunately, when they, when they do have accidents are, are fairly catastrophic. The ag doesn't surprise me at all. You know, uh, in my sales business, I work with a lot of ag operators. Um, and there is a shift. I can tell you the ag operators that I work with take it very seriously on trying to be safe. Um, but there, you know, production for ag has greatly increased. The amount of acres that people are spraying now has greatly increased, which is, in my opinion, what's causing a lot of accidents is fatigue. These guys um, are very good pilots out there. In fact, a, a really close friend of mine very experienced. It was a Blackhawk driver, then civilian pilot now for a very long time, uh, was vo involved in a wire strike. And it's the, it's the, uh, thank God he, he, he survived very lucky. Uh, but it was the, you know, been spraying for weeks straight, a lot of time, lots of, you know, feeling fatigue and the same story. I knew there, there was wires there and I still hit him. And, and I think that year alone, that was a couple of years ago. I think, man, he was that, seventh or eighth accident for hitting wires, you know, in that short, um, you know, spray season. So, you know, I would love, um, 
you know, I don't know what the fix is. You know, obviously you can regulate things to the umpteenth degree and things maybe change or don't change. I'm not sure, but you know, I, I hope that the ag world will start to, um, you know, I think a lot of operators take the right stance and maybe some don't. I think it comes to pilot fatigue, you know, we're all human and when you're tired, you're going to make mistakes. So that's just my, uh, <laughs> my opinion of what's causing a lot of that. Yeah, those accidents. I, I agree with you. I think, you know, when you look at a lot of the challenges, um, ag operators face a lot of them they, because of the long days, like you said, fatigue, sometimes they're operating even at night for frost and other type of, um, frost prevention mitigation. And, um, you know, they're dealing with variable weather and, um, you know, issues with significant maneuvering, low level, little margin for error. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things at play and it takes, you know, I think I, as a safety professional, I think about, um, you know, the amount of risk that we accept and it's easy to forget what, you know, not that I want to become that's what, at the risk of alienating listeners because I don't want to become an airline pilot. I actually, you know, when I was in high school, that's what I thought I wanted to do. And then, made a quick 180 when I realized how boring that was. <laughs> so don't get me wrong <laughs> yeah. here. But Seriously. when you look at the fact that these airplanes are flying like at, you know, mock right at the edge of the speed of sound at, you know, place where there's no oxygen, the temperatures are well below freezing. They got hundreds of people on board and they're doing it millions and millions and millions of hours every year with zero accidents for like more than 12 months at a time. It's actually incredibly um, it's incredibly impressive. Um, and what I'm getting at there is that it, there's no reason not that we should regulate ag to death. That's not necessarily the solution. It doesn't take any regulation in fact, to operate safely. Um, that's actually, it takes when you don't operate safely, unfortunately, that's where regulations come into play. Uh, so the best way to prevent a lot of regulation is by self-regulating. Um, and yeah, that's, what's difficult. Of course, when money and other compensation comes involved and, priorities can get out of line, but it's all doable. You can, you can, uh, do a lot of, accept a lot of risk, um, or I should say manage a lot of risk when you, you know, just take the consequences seriously. Yeah. And for me, actually, one of the big things for, yeah, for safety culture true. is just, you know, I see like the, especially, like I said, you know, always seeing myself as a risk taker, like mastery of what I'm doing and risk management is like what enables me to do the things I like without like, you know, long-term and continuously applying or not. And so I think with that mindset, like you wouldn't go, wouldn't go, uh, you know, base jumping without knowing how to tie a knot on your parachute. I mean, that's a terrible example. Obviously, I we're packing your parachute, obviously, but the point is like, you're going to know what you're doing. <laughs> and um, if you want to come out alive and I think the same thing applies, it's just like, it's being smart to, to know what you're doing and take it seriously. Well, it's crazy too. I mean, I'm like you, you know, I'm kind of a adrenaline junkie um, and, you know, skiing, kiteboarding, mountain biking, you know, those are like my top three favorite things to do. And in those communities, uh, at least the people that I surround myself with, they take it seriously. Like it's fun to go and ski in the backcountry, but you better be a part of the solution and not the problem. You know, the guys that I ride with, you know, um, it's very highly choreographed to hopefully eliminate some of the risk um, and mitigate, okay, if this does happen, what's our out? Um, you know, in fact, this Friday I'm doing, um, I'm like an intermediate kiter when it comes to kiteboarding. I'm not, I'm never going to be great 
but I can ride, I can jump, whatever. Um, and the area that I rode in Texas was very shallow water. You know, you, you crash, your board falls off. You just stand up, walk and grab it. You know, your kite crashes down. Yeah, it's not a big deal. You just stand up and get your kite flying again. Moving to Oregon, got the Columbia River Gorge, deep water, great kiting, but something that I'm not familiar with. And so I am not going out there and just going to kite and see what happens. I'm taking, I'm spending money, too much <laughs> money in my opinion, to go and take a lesson on Friday for, you know, deep water yeah. kiting and self-rescue and, you know, body dragging to get your board, you know, things that I'm not comfortable with because I really want to have a good time when I do those things, but you have to mitigate some of the risk. So, you know, I try to bring that into flying. And I think that probably a lot of pilots are like us, you know, that, you know, gravitate, like you said, towards risky, fun things. Uh, Cause that's, you know, I like, um, part of I think that out, you know, avalanche, like uh, avalanche is not necessarily the forecasting, but um, you know, avalanche safety is like one of the closest parallels, I think, to what we really do. But one of the things that I really like about if anybody's been through an avalanche safety course um, to really get schooled on it or, you know, any of the different levels, there's a lot of group dynamics like, group, you know, because you're generally not out there alone, but there's a lot of communication stuff and they have checklists on communication and all this. And my point is, like, I think the group dynamic element is actually really something that the helicopter industry could do better with is like, you know, if you're. I, if you are not sure about something, you know, the, the need to speak up, like all that's an important part of the communication when you're in the back country and everybody's having a great time, you're skiing power powder, but if you're not comfortable with something, it doesn't get said, or like, those are when, you know, things might happen and you're relying on your friends to save you in those cases. Um, so it's that much more important to speak up. But my point is just that, yeah, I think, you know, I have a lot of friends that I don't hesitate to call when I've got a question with my experience level, you know, there's always somebody who's got a lot more or done something you've done in a different way, different place or something similar. And I don't hesitate to call those people or talk to them and say, Hey, how's this sound to you? Like, what do you think about this? And, you know, that's the unfortunate side of being out there. Sometimes it's the PIC without, you might feel like you're on your own, but there's tons of resources and some of them might just be your buddies. And so, uh, you know, those are good things to take advantage of. Yeah. And something interesting too, when it comes to safety and how safety can positively impact the whole entire industry for all operators uh, that I see in my sales business is the insurance side of helicopters. Um, you know, uh, I talk to clients, I have clients that own uh, private jets that are, you know, eight, nine, $10 million aircraft. And they are bewildered when their insurance premium for their million dollar R66 is quadruple the amount of their $10 million airplane. Um, and so obviously insurance is statistically driven, right? It's, it's a bunch of number crunchers that analyze risk and they use numbers to come up with, you know, comparable uh, premiums. And so I, I know that um, you've probably seen it on the insurance side um, as well as I have, but I think if as an industry as a whole, if we can start decreasing and eliminating some of these accidents, um, then we're all actually going to benefit. You know, our premiums uh, after the Kobe accident, uh, helicopter premiums went up from about 4% up to about 10% whole value, you know, overnight. Yeah, it's put people um, out of business. So, you know, hopefully some of your efforts are, are, yeah, you know, so, you know, I think that on a lot of operations, you know, air medical, big companies, whether they want to engage in safety or not, 
they're kind of have to because they're a big company. They're they're heavily exposed. And so they just have to invest yeah. the money to do it, you know, uh, and they have the money to do it. Uh, and a lot of these smaller operators maybe don't have have that kind of money to fully invest in upgrading their fleet or whatnot, but they can start putting safety at a higher priority so they can hopefully drive down their insurance premiums, you know, specifically in the ag world, uh, outrageous premiums. So, you know, I, I know that you've probably seen it. Uh, I know that you work with a lot of private owners. Have Has that been a kind of a common experience for you to, to have owners shocked at the uh, premium they're, yeah, they're you paying? Know, because I was uh, basically an operator. I ran the operation for a long time and insurance was a huge part of what, it's just a huge part of your business. It's one, it's a large part of your overhead and cost for running a fleet. Um, so um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, I mean, all the way to the private operators only got one. Uh, there's probably a lot of listeners who maybe don't know, but just in the last few years, um, yeah, there's an enormous shift because there used to be close to 10 different underwriters who would, and under basically brokers are the people who sell you insurance, but underwriters are the people who evaluate the risk. And, um, you know, I've learned a ton about insurance and had great mentorship on the insurance side from Dave Monaco at Southwest Aviation Insurance. He's just like a incredibly generous guy with his knowledge and resources. And he also, I think, from my opinion, just a great guy to work with if people are looking for an insurance provider. But in any case, um, the underwriters are the ones who accept the risk and evaluate it. And in the long term, or I shouldn't say in the long term, just in the last few years, it's come down from like almost 10 underwriters to four. And so it's actually like a very real threat. All the other ones just backed out. They just said, we can't justify the risk. There's not enough money here for us. And most of the insurancers, uh, underwriters are operating in the red. Uh, and when that happens, it threatens our industry. Like they, if they pull out, there's no way to meet the regulatory requirements to actually run a business. Um, so yeah, the, you know, it's a real threat and it certainly can't be understated, you know, in addition to the loss of life and everything else, like, you know, the insurance side. Um, and with private owners, definitely a huge factor. Um, and I should say, like, if you implement strong safety strategies and it's known, then your broker can go to bat for you and they can get you discounts. It's not like a, a thing that, you know, is, well, maybe it'll work. Well, I shouldn't say there's no guarantees, but the point is like, if you're consistently doing that, that's a known factor, they'll go earn you a better rate. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely something to put some, you know, resources towards. Yeah. Having a good broker is important. Um, I always like to tell people on the private side, at least, you know, get with a broker that's helicopter specific, you know, that has a lot of helicopter knowledge because they can go back to the underwriters and say, Hey, look, here's the safety protocols. Here's the training that we're going to do. Uh, what, what can you do then to kind of help make this an easier transition? Cause it's not just only the premium that can be outrageous. Sometimes the training requirements are a little bit outrageous as well. Um, so that's cool. What, what was your guy's Dave name? Monaco. Dave Monaco yep. he's with South Southwest aviation insurance group. And they're, he's just like a, like I say, super generous with his knowledge. So if people are trying to better get a grip on insurance, uh, how it works or just trying to better understand rates or opportunities, especially low time people, he's super, he's very, like you said, he's very helicopter specific. Um, he does airplanes too, but highly knowledgeable. Yeah, he knows. He knows. And, and it's important to know, I'm going to use my uh, my whopping large platform here to uh, make a blanket statement. Um, 
when you're getting helicopter insurance, if you're a private owner and you're new to helicopters, new to aviation ownership, uh, getting aviation insurance is a lot different than, say, getting a car insurance quote or a homeowner's where you go out and you shop and you talk to maybe three or four different brokers. It does not work that way in, in helicopter or aviation insurance. Um, typically, underwriters will provide an estimate for an individual from one broker. Uh, meaning if you go to five brokers, the underwriters will probably say, well, we already wrote an estimate for broker X. Uh, and so in order to, to work with the agent that you would want, then you would have to essentially divorce them uh, in, in writing to get to a different agent. So I think it's really important uh, before you give an insurance agent your information or too much information about yourself or, or specifically aircraft identifying information, make sure that who you're talking to uh, really understands helicopters and helicopter insurance. Those are the guys that you're going to want to work with because they can go to bat on the underwriters. I don't know Dave. Uh, he says yep. his name is Dave Monaco. I don't know him, but I'm going to talk to him uh, because I have a couple good uh, agents that I work with as well, but always looking to uh, be able to add to my repertoire. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's really scary thought to think, you know, 10 underwriters to four, essentially overnight. Um, I've seen it impact my business greatly. And uh, it, it's a real threat to the to the community. So um, just one of those things that, again, uh, I love your airplane example. You know, these, <laughs> these airplanes are doing things that they shouldn't do. I mean, it boggles my mind every time I'm in an airplane. Like, you know, it's negative 69 degrees and it's, you know, 40,000 feet going nearly mock you know, what could go wrong? And, you know, somehow most of the time things don't. So, you know, I'd love to, to be able to get the helicopter industry to that. And, and obviously airplanes and helicopters are very different. The missions are very different, just a different profile. Uh, in regards to the uh, U.S. helicopter safety team, uh, how can uh, our listeners get involved if that's something that they're interested in doing? Is it is it a collaborative effort? Uh, is, it, is, it, is there a membership? I don't, I'm guilty. <laughs> Not super familiar. Yeah, uh, maybe it's something I should familiarize myself with. So uh, how can people get involved with not just the U.S. Uh, helicopter safety team, but also HAI uh, and your um, work that you yeah, do with them? I'll, uh, yeah, I'll hit that from a couple angles. First of all, yeah, it used to be a little bit more closed, but these days, um, yeah, over the last few years, the USHSD will welcome any assistance from anybody, and, and they value everybody's unique experience. And so you don't have to feel like you have to have some background or back, you know, some specific training, um, you know, whatever sort of experience you have gives you a unique perspective that could probably contribute to some of the, the work that's being done. Um, so uh, we'll put some, some links out there, but uh, you know, we, there are uh, a couple ways that I'd encourage everybody to get involved. First of all, it's just a, the website has an enormous amount of resources. I would argue, honestly, almost too much because it's hard to sort through it all and know where to go. But if you're looking for resources, <laughs> you know, there are a million links on any topic that you really want to learn about from a safety perspective or just even skills perspective like mountain flying or, well, I shouldn't say mountain flying as much, but certainly, uh, yeah, certain certain techniques associated with mountain flying or just something that associated with a certain maneuver or um, type of flying, you can go on there and there's probably some safety information or recommendations. Um, there's a monthly, uh, they call it an all hands webinar, but basically it's open to anybody every month you can join. 
and they give a report on what they're up to and they give a, they always have some educational material about some topic um, and it's uh, usually attended by yeah dozens and dozens of people sometimes hundreds but anybody can join and then same thing if they're talking about a certain initiative and it strikes a chord with you you can volunteer and get involved and actually contribute um, right you know through that channel um, so there's the website and then um, yeah there's lots of materials out there um, if the one that's actually probably been the most successful is called the 56 seconds to live video and there's a lot of training associated with that if you're an airplane pilot, uh, you may be familiar with the 178 seconds to live video is actually quite dated now, but um, 50, basically that was a, an inadvertent IMC type um, uh, video where somebody in an airplane encounters an issue and they count down um, because that was the average time a, a general aviation pilot might have uh, before impact in, that, in, a, in an airplane that goes into the clouds inadvertently. So they crunched the numbers based on all the recent inadvertent IMC accident and helicopters and found that it was less than a minute, around 56 seconds between entry and impact, uh, which is kind of alarming. And if you watch the video, you will find it um, moving probably, it's, it's intense. Um, so if you haven't seen it, go check it out. Uh, we, we think that that's probably had more, it's been viewed about almost 60,000 times on YouTube and it seems like it's had a, an impact on people. In addition to the video, once you see it, you know, if it's something you wanna, learn more about obviously prevention or strategies to not just avoidance of an inadvertent IMC, but um, you know what to do if you encounter it. Um, there's a lot of training materials built around that because it's such an important element of the industry. So that's one way you could go, you know, get some real direct training um, or the, and again, a lot of resources around that. And then um, there's a, just a lot of what are called helicopter safety enhancements. enhancements. So uh, I don't remember the exact number, but we just finished off basically over the last uh, probably six years, um, a bunch of strategies to try to implement, uh, to attack these specific statistical causes. So I headed up one of them was uh, risk assessment for training flights. Um, and that was, for example, just uh, there's a document out there that if you're not doing any sort of pre-flight risk assessment or you're not sure what it should look like, um, it coaches people all the way from a simple paved checklist up to like, you know, something more involved that might be software or web-based databasing, um, recognizing that everybody comes with different resources and time. The point is like, that, that's an example, like doing some sort of risk assessment before you fly. So you know what you're getting into is one of the key strategies, uh, especially in training, but in any operation, you know, to keep yourself out of trouble. I do want to, I, I want to interrupt real fast because I think I want to talk about that a little bit more. A lot of our listeners are, are lower time. Um, and they may not be so familiar, their flight school that they're at might not have uh, like a risk assessment. Uh, I'm Hillsborough instituted it back in my time there. And then uh, Air Evac, the air medical company I worked with, uh, had a pretty comprehensive online based uh, system through Baldwin uh, for their risk analysis, uh, you know, checklist. What, what, what exactly is that? Well, from I think, your perspective? Um, like you said, there's there's a big spectrum of what's out there. Um, but really what everybody wants to, I think that's a lot of what I put into this document. And I think was put out by the USHST in this particular case is the recognition that there's a lot of different time and resources, depending on the operation as to what can be contribute, you know, what can be done to, to what sort of resources are best for somebody to evaluate um, the risks they're about to take on when they take a flight. And so I guess the most important thing I think for me is to say that in my opinion, um, if you're gonna assess the risks for an operation, 
your risk assessment should be proportional to the amount of risk you accept. And that means if you have a really beautiful day with low risk flying, you know, place to place straight level and there's no traffic and you've got resources and no distractions and pressures, it probably shouldn't take you a really long time to assess those risks. You've considered them all, but then from an actionable standpoint, if you took you an hour to to fill out paperwork for that flight every day, you would quickly lose interest and it would be counterproductive. Um, but on the other hand, if you're doing an operation that's highly risky and it has a lot of unique variables going on that change all the time, then it probably behooves you to sit down and actually consider all the things that are at play. Um, and once you, you know, you have to do the checklist to say, well, what am I facing? But the big important part is actually to go and take action based on that. So, you know, some of the risk assessments, like you said, might be a, you know, in a paramedical transport, it might just give you a number and say, go, no go, or use caution. Um, it depends, they're all a little bit different. These days, um, and I was part of the implementation of this, but having some sort of mitigation, once you say, okay, the weather's marginal, well, what are you gonna do about it is really the important part is to say, it's in the yellow, but it's still in the go range. Well, you're really only half done because you should probably set up some trigger points that dictate what triggers plan A, plan B or plan C, I should say, and then be on the same page with your passengers or other stakeholders and what the trigger points are so that there's not pressure they know ahead of time. And if it's just you, that's fine. And then, uh, you know, know what the other plans are and be ready to execute them. If you haven't done that, then accepting, you know, the marginal weather hasn't done you a lot of good. It just gave you a heads up. And so that's where the extra time comes in. If you have a lot of stuff that's iffy, then you spend a little bit of time making sure that you know how to deal with it or what your outs are. And then hopefully that'll come between you, obviously, in an accident. And so, yeah, without going into too much depth, how to do that in a variety of ways is in this particular document that I authored. Um, but there's that's just one of many helicopter safety enhancements that are out there. Um, and there are more coming. So that, um, the new ones are mostly focused on night performance and wind effects on the helicopter fatigue. Like you said, these are issues that are still ongoing. Um, but there's a million resources out there all to address these, um, you know, the most prevalent causes for accidents. Um, and if people are looking for ways to to address them, then, um, you know, that's a good resource to go to. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear that that's available to everyone. Um, and I, I'll echo what you say, you know, the risk analysis is as good as you make it really. Right. You know, when I, when I was working air medical, um, I could fall into a trap sometimes where it's like, you, you know, you're just clicking these little check boxes and you're not necessarily, evaluating what's putting you into say a cautionary yellow zone or whatnot, you know? So, um, I think that's probably, you know, I, I bet you could boil down a lot of accidents to just complacency and, you know, doing a risk analysis, um, you could fall into a trap of complacency pretty quick. So I do encourage our listeners that if you are using, uh, a risk management tool, you know, prior as part of your pre-flight planning, whether you're just a, a personal private pilot or you're working for a large operator, you know, make sure that you're diving deep in, into what's increasing the risk. And if, and if there's ways to mitigate it, ways to plan for it, ways to think about it, uh, I think is really important. I think that, you know, one of the things that I, I always try to relate helicopters like we've done already in this episode to uh, other things that we do in life, like skiing or mountain biking or, you know, all the fun stuff. And uh, kind of lost my train of thought. Sorry. Well, I mean, uh, it kind of relates, I think. But, that's why, again, with like the avalanche safety thing, 
that's what a big relationship that I see to it is just like, if I'm going to go play in the backcountry, uh, I have to look at the, the weather and the snowpack and consider the variables. If I don't, then, you know, it's a question mark as to what I'll encounter. I haven't done my due diligence, but I think, um, yeah, it's like you said, uh, it, it doesn't matter what type of flying you're doing when I'm, a, I, you know, I do VIP and corporate flying. There's nobody there to tell me what to do. And so to your point, when complacency comes in, that can always be a factor, but ultimately building as a resource, if you're on your own um, or if you're, you know, in one, maybe you're, I was running an operation, whatever it is, you want to make sure the tool works. And by that, I mean, everybody's bought into it or you're, you're bought into it. And if you feel like it's, you know, overkill, or if you don't like it, or if it's time consuming, there's always going to be an element of self-discipline, like anything you do to make sure that you actually do what's appropriate. But most important is that your tool is actually doing what it's supposed to. And it's not, um, yeah, it's not seen as a burden. If it's just a burden then it doesn't, you know, if it's just clicking boxes, then it always will unfortunately kind of fall into that zone of just like doing the paperwork. Um, so my point there is, uh, try, you know, you want to try to develop something as simple as it needs to be to make sure that it covers your bases and use whatever, you know, works for you. Yeah, no, totally. And, uh, you know, like I said, I think it's cool. And I hope that uh, private operators specifically will, um, you know, take advantage of those tools, um, especially if they're available to them, you know, through that website, through links and things like that. Um, because again, I, I always try to encourage my private owners to to treat their private helicopter ownership as if they were like a small operator uh, on, on safety, managing maintenance. You know, there's just so much that goes into helicopters. So uh, I think that's really important. I do want to transition a little bit. Uh, one of the things that we haven't talked about is uh, you are a DPE designated pilot examiner. Uh, so you're the big scary guy, uh, you know, uh, performing check rides and, uh, you know, providing certificates to people uh, through the form of putting them through a, a rigorous uh, ground and, and flight, you know, something as a pilot we've all gone through, you know, if you're, if you have a license, you've had a check ride and uh, if you have, multiple certificates and you've worked at multiple companies, then doing check rides becomes kind of second nature and they get easier, not easier, but uh, mentally they get a little bit easier. Um, you know, you, some of like my private check rides, probably the scariest because I didn't know what to expect. Um, from a DPE perspective, if you're able to talk about it, what are things that you put emphasis on and, or what are things that you see um, are maybe lacking in, helicopter training um, right now yeah it's a good question uh, I, before i get into that i want to throw out one more thing uh it's real brief as a resource um that i think is being underutilized we're actually trying to expand it with the hai safety working group but it's the there's a big network of weather cams around the country that's uh put up by the faa with a lot of great it's a map a lot of great resources on it so whether you're planning flights or determining weather especially if you live in an area um, where there might be bad weather, uh, weather cam, and I mean, low visibility, things like that, the weather cams can help with weathercams.faa.gov. I just want to make sure to throw that out there. It's not well-known resource and we're also we're actively trying to expand it. Um, and so just in your pre-flight planning, just want to make sure that people have the opportunity to go check that out. Cause it's a really awesome, uh, site that's not getting a lot of use. Um, so back to DPE stuff. Thanks for me. Give me the opportunity to throw that in there. No, no, that's cool. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, and again, we're going to put uh, different links within uh, the description of this video, uh, and we can certainly add that link 
Uh, yeah, it's a resource you know, that I'm not familiar with, And having to be cameras honest, along so, your flight um, route is so valuable. I'm always looking at like DOT cameras along highways. You know, if there's low visibility, I got to see what I'm about to fly into. Having a, a camera is, is just gold. So um, it's just something I want to make sure people know about because it's, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's heavily used. All right, so moving on. It's funny, yeah, because I do it when I drive like to Portland, you know, on a winter day through the pass. <laughs> the first thing I do is look at cams. Yeah. You know, it's like, all right, what kind of... What kind of nonsense am I going to be getting into here on this drive? So it's, you know, it's funny to think that I would do it right, for driving. Yeah. Why not flying? So it's cool that it's cool that that network is building. And um, yeah, hopefully uh, through a little press on this show and, and just other outlets, that's go- going to be a tool that's more utilized. But yes, yeah, no back to the DPE, the big, scary, um, bad wolf. I le- yeah, I think uh, <laughs> you mentioned how over time they can get a little bit uh, easier. I, I think one of the things I'd say about giving tests, first of all, I mean, you know, it's a big spectrum as to what you'll get. At, and just because you have different personalities of DPEs, not every testing environment is going to be exactly the same. Um, you know, I'm trying to keep my applicants at ease. I want them to be relaxed because um, ultimately the test is not supposed to, um, you know, it's not supposed to put you under duress the whole time. And so that's one of the challenges I know I faced and everybody did, does is calming your nerves. Um, but over time, if it, you know, easier said than done, maybe, but, you know, I, I still take tests where I've taken, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still still taking checks for different operators or whatever, insurance checks or FAA DPE checks or all sorts of things that still go on with the same sort of gravity. And I think the point is that you just learn to make sure that you rely on your training and you do what you're supposed to do and uh, not try to do what you think they want you to do. Because if your training was right, then what you do, what you, what comes naturally to you should be the right thing. And um, of course that relies on your training, but if your training wasn't up to snuff, then you know, it's already too late. You got, you know, hopefully you're with a CFI who takes things seriously. They don't train you just for the test. They train you to be a proficient pilot because if you're a proficient pilot, you're going to pass the test and, of course, you could have a bad day or something, um, but those also are the days, you know, if that happens, you'll learn more than you would have if you passed. That's the reality of it. Um, I know I failed the test when I took check rides. I didn't pass every single one of them. They were enormously valuable learning moments for me. Not that I, you know, certainly I, I don't want to have somebody not pass a test. It's always unfortunate. I ever always go out there hoping to issue a certificate, but um you know, certainly not the end of the world. I'm a DP and I think I actually failed two of my practical tests through my double I, um, you know, reasons that other people, you know, the same sort of things didn't hit the V lock button or something on, on the one of them and uh, had a ILS and a VOR that were co-located at the airport and didn't identify the difference till it was too late. I think something along those lines, you know, things that could be gotchas. Um, but I, I guess another little thing to remember, especially on instrument tests is, um, you know, you, you can't really cheat. I remember somebody was like, Oh, I wrote V lock like on the brim of my hat for my test. <laughs> and I was like, that's so hilarious because uh, <laughs> you know, when it comes to checklists and like giving yourself resources, you can, you absolutely like give yourself every possible way to be successful using resources, checklists. It doesn't matter if it's sticky notes or whatever. That, that's great. We, we, we really want you to develop your resources and be using what's available to you. And again, that can come back to the training, but if you're relaxed and you know, um, yeah, that flying is not all about memorization. It's about seeing and reacting to things in real time and catching them before it becomes an issue. You know, that, that should help you. Um, 
I was going to say, let's see. Um, the other thing that's been, uh, been, I guess, along some of the similar lines, though, is um, training to the practical test standards I kind of mentioned, but I think, you know, is, is something that doesn't generally make for long-term good pilots. And so as an examiner, uh, I'm usually trying to, or it's a little bit uh, concerning when somebody might um, do great, do a lot of good maneuvers, but, you know, they don't seem like they have, um, they don't feel like they have the authority to make any decisions on the test. They just look at you for everything. And that's, that's a challenge. Uh, you know, I usually tell my applicants, you know, I'm here just to direct you through the maneuvers. If, you know, whatever comes up in the flight um, is really your responsibility to, to handle um, as PIC, not just legally, but from a demonstration standpoint. And that might sound like a tall order, but obviously that's the, the certificate you're earning is to go be able to do that. And ultimately, uh, it doesn't, you don't have to feel time pressure. You don't have to feel, um, I guess the point is that when something comes up, you follow the decide method, stay relaxed, examine your options, reevaluate. If you don't like the action you took first, take another one. You don't have to be, I think the pressure, I felt the pressure to be right and do everything only one way every time and do it the way the examiner wants. And that's not really the standard. The standard is just to, you know, use, use decision-making to come to a reasonable conclusion. And then if you, if it's not the best one to take action before there's a consequence. Um, and I think that sort of decision-making is something you want to practice. So I guess my point is if you're in your training and you've never made a decision, your instructor always says, go this way, go that way, stop, turn around. There's somebody coming like that doesn't really give you the opportunity to exercise your decision-making muscles. And it becomes really evident on tests. And so, um, you can work with your instructors or find instructors who are willing to let you exercise those muscles. Um, they don't just direct everything. They work together with you to let you, uh, you know, and obviously this, this isn't to say that you shouldn't trust your CFI's judgment. The point is just that, uh, you know, at some point before the test, you should be making some of the decisions in the cockpit with them next to you so that you're comfortable doing so when an examiner is there instead. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think it goes from both perspectives, student and CFI. You know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're about to become a CFI or you're a new CFI, it's really challenging to not kind of be a micromanager in the cockpit. You know, um, I always told people teaching someone how to fly helicopters, like watching my dad try to Google something. You know, my dad's not uh, not the most tech savvy guy. He wasn't part of his generation, you know, and so he's over there finger pecking, you know, one letter at a time, it would be easier for me just to push him aside and say, let me do it, you know, uh, but then he wouldn't learn. Right. And so, you know, I know in the beginning as a flight instructor, for me personally, I was like kind of micromanaged the cockpit too much and was not necessarily allowing my students to get the full scope and the full picture. Cause I a hundred percent agree with you. I mean, anyone could, technically fly a helicopter decently, you know, if it's just flying and controlling the machine, you know, but that decision-making aspect is really challenging. Um, and some people have more of an innate ability to do it, but some have to kind of learn that. And that's a hard skill to learn. So if you're a CFI and you're new to CFIing, keep that in mind, you know, obviously you want to not allow things to get out of control. You're there to maintain the safety of the aircraft and, and yourself and your student, but you have to allow your, your student to make acceptable 
errors at times, right? Um, so, you know, keep that in mind, you know, it's from both sides. You know, as a student, you want to make sure that you're not just relying on your CFI. And as a as an instructor, you want to make sure that you're allowing your student to exercise some decision making. How long have you uh, been a DPE now, Dave? 19, so four years now. Oh, wow. Long time. Look at you, Mr. DPE. Uh, and I knew you win. I knew you win. Um, well, that's cool, Dave. Um, you know, I think, yeah, going into taking a test, you know, it's hard. I think part of, but part of being a pilot is, you know, there's always a level of intensity, right? So I think just the innate stress of having a check ride is a good thing. Um, because flying a helicopter or flying an airplane is stressful. Um, not all the time, but there's a lot of times where, you know, you're forced to be in a stressful situation and you have to act. So I think it's important for applicants to feel that pressure a little bit, you know, that's just only normal. It's just part of, part of flying helicopters. Um, I do think Dave, I'd love to have you on again, uh, to continue talks about, uh, the industry and what you're doing as in the industry to, to help mitigate, uh, risk and help enhance the safety culture of the entire industry. Uh, unfortunately, we're kind of running near our time for today. So hopefully I can uh, coerce you back sometime soon. Uh, maybe even some fun collaboration work uh, in the future with some of the different safety organizations you're working with. Uh, you know, we can use the podcast to help uh, push sure. some of that stuff out to the world. Uh, do you have any parting thoughts um, uh, before we can major? I, just, I would, yeah, just in case he became too convoluted there as a DPE, I just want to uh, say that, yeah, you know, if you, if you're trained well and you're, you have exercise the ability to make these good decisions and you bring in, you know, trying to have self-confidence so that you're flying based on your own terms and not, not just doing what you think somebody else wants you to do. Um, then you're going to have a good test. And if you feel like you're not there, then spend some more time trying to get there. It makes it a breeze when you're confident and you know what you're doing because that's what it's designed to do. Um, and of course at a different private level, you don't have to master everything, but, uh, you know, if you have confidence to do the things in the PTS, you'll have a good test. Um, and, and trying to, you know, if you're trying to scrape by with maybe the, minimums, the most cliche, you, you very stressful test. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And kind of like the cliche statement that I've heard, but I, I agree with it is, you know, once you get your certificate, that's really your license to go and learn more. Um, you know, I, specifically for private owners, you know, they get the certificate and kind of cut you loose, you know, and, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're a private owner, I would heavily encourage you to continue training. You don't necessarily need to continue training to have a goal of getting a certificate. You know, if you're a private owner operator, you never have any ambitions of being a commercial guy, you don't necessarily have to get your commercial, but doing, you know, once a quarter, uh, training flights with the CFI, going out and doing maneuvers, auto rotations, um, trying to get a fuller scope of, okay, I kind of understand sailing with power, but I really want to fully understand when I can get myself into it, you know, in my specific private mission that I'm flying, you know, uh, LTE. Okay. I get it. You know, wind coming from this directions are, are dangerous, but do I really fully actually understand of, you know, planning my, uh, landing? you know, when I'm applying a bunch of power and do I fully actually get it, you know, and, and the answer is probably you don't. And so I would always encourage you to continue learning, making sure that you're uh, getting in with a CFI, 
and uh, just sharpen in your toolbox because that's when you really become a good pilot is just through experience and uh, learning from, from other people. I certainly know that my students were able to learn from a lot of my mistakes that they didn't have to make because it's a route that I had already discovered and I could kind of guide them into not doing that. So, uh, you know, Dave, I really appreciate the time today. I think it's really cool um, what you're doing and I appreciate what you're doing for the industry because we need guys like you and gals uh, that are committed to not just their personal safety, but uh, actually creating an industry where maybe we could get to a 0% someday. Um, but it's not going to happen if people aren't taking action. So Dave, thank you so much for taking action. And to our listeners, if you want to take action with Dave, uh, check out the links in the description here. We'll have links to a uh, uh, variety of resources. Uh, and, you know, uh, I'm sure you could track down Dave somehow if you want to learn yeah, more of just, how you can get involved. I've got my, my uh, website, saferotors.com, S-A-F-E-R-O-T-O-R-S.com. Oh. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, all my contact information is available there. And that could be for any questions, any, any, you know, whatever you want to reach out to me about services, DPE instruction, um, but, you know, I'm happy to help guide people into the safety side of the industry. So feel free to visit the website. There's some resources there too, or yeah, give me a call or email me. You are a, you're also like a insurance auditor. Um, I do too, training right? with private certain um, airframes with, private helicopter owners um, and uh, still pending insurance approval, but it's submitted. So hopefully we'll have that soon. Um, but yeah, we, we, I Very do. Cool. Uh, yeah. Mo mostly with aircraft owners uh, and if people need instruction for initial or recurrent, then that, that's something I do offer. Well, thank you again, Dave, saferotors.com. If you want to connect with Dave, I'm sure Dave will be back on the show. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you again for uh, tuning into the helicopter podcast. Uh, this episode has been awesome. I think that anytime we can really start talking about uh, safety and being open, honest about the uh, the risks that are that are involved in flying helicopters is amazing. Uh, if you like the helicopter podcast, please subscribe so every Tuesday you get notified when we drop a new episode, just like this one. And uh, as I said in the beginning of the show, feel free to leave a review. Uh, that helps my podcast grow and uh, will hopefully allow me to reach more people. And one of the cool things that I want to do on the platform is to continue conversations with guys like Dave about safety. And so the larger the platform, uh, the, the louder the voice. So uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll check. <laughs> Thanks uh, for having me. I'll check you out next awesome. time Appreciate on the Helicopter it. Podcast. <laughs> See you, Dave.